Welcome to The Paleo View. I'm bestselling author and co-creator of realeverything.com, Stacey Toth. I focus on being healthy inside and out through real life, food, and talk. I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, New York Times bestselling author and creator of thepaleomom.com. I'm passionate about improving scientific literacy around public health topics. I like hashtags and bone broth. And I'm just a super nerd. Welcome back to the Paleo View. Listeners, I don't know if you can tell, but I'm home and so excited to jump in to today's very sciencey topic. Hi, Sarah. <laughs> no, super science coming up. I am home and I've been sleeping in my own bed and snuggling my pets and it's been magical. Um, but before we jump into today's show, I have something I want to share with you. Okay. So you remember the family? Okay, you might not remember. Listeners, I stayed with a family in Texas, outside of Houston, the suburbs. That family happened to be the friend with the child that had alopecia that we talked about in the show a couple of months ago. I'm sure you remember that show. Sorry. I remember that show. I did not make that connection up until you just said it, though. I figured. And most listeners, I mean, you, they probably don't even know where I was and what I was doing. So it's <laughs> fine. I, my breath was taken away because her hair is growing back. Yay! And I like almost want to have that family on the show and I haven't asked her permission to talk about her and their names and whatever. So I'm not going to do that. But um, I asked her about it. I said, oh my gosh, her hair is growing back. It's incredible. And she said she has two different kinds of alopecia, one of which had a 5% chance of regrowth and one of which had a 7%. So it was like of the 5%, only 7% chance she could grow back. And instead of doing, you know, just what the doctor said. She had focused on improved gut health through regulating the immune system. And they ate a lot of vegetables and um, her daughter went AIP for a while. And she here's the magical thing about this is that once her hair started to regrow, she started to incorporate more like gluten-free things and not strict AIP and mm -hmm. it's still growing back. And I just was like, my breath was taken away and I just was so happy for her and her family, but also like for the community to tell you it's possible. Like I'm looking at it and I'm just, I wanted to share that with you because it was so special. <laughs> um, I, I'm like overwhelmed. I don't, Oh my gosh, I'm trying not to cry right now. I, um, so often on this podcast, we uh, read listeners questions and we, we try very hard to give very thorough answers and also to expand those answers beyond the specific questions so that it's really applicable to, um, our, you know, all of our listeners, or at least in, in some part. And we don't often 
get the follow-up stories. We've done a few episodes where there's been follow-up or um, a follow-up question from a, another listener who listened to a podcast is sort of a more common way for us to approach these episodes. Um, but it's, it's so, um, it's so gratifying to, to know that, you know, beyond just creating this, you know, amazing community of listeners who are nerding out with us every week and who really care about the science behind all of these health topics, that implementing that information is making such a profound difference in people's lives. And I also just want to emphasize for for people who are potentially new to this podcast or thinking about the autoimmune protocol and are really intimidated by it, this is... Um, a really great example of the AIP not being a life sentence. So part of the autoimmune protocol is this reintroduction phase. Um, there is, uh, you know, most people get to reintroduce at least some foods. And Stacey, you and I have reintroduced tons of foods after following the autoimmune protocol. But it's always really wonderful to be able to point to uh, outside examples of people who have used the protocol for healing and then been able to maintain that um, the core philosophy of the AIP, right? Nutrient density, gut microbiome health, immune regulation, the lifestyle stuff, and then expand the diet beyond the initial elimination phase and continue healing. Like that is that is how the protocol is supposed to work. And so I kind of wanted to... Um, I just wanted to express gratitude for you sharing that story, Stacy, but also take the the teachable moment out of it for our listeners. Totally. And you made me tear up a little bit. I know my my black heart is is oozing out of my eyes. I don't know what's <laughs> happening. <laughs> um, so I do want to point out one of the things that they incorporated when I opened their fridge was like a ton of kombucha and um just thrive probiotics. And so one of the things that we said before the show, I was like, I have something to share. And you were like, does it make sense? I said, oh, yes, it does. Because (laughs) um, this week we have Thrive Probiotic as our sponsor. And so it made so much sense for me to share this with you this week. I could have shared it last week, but it didn't really go. And so I wanted to wait until it was special and made sense. And so um, if you have not yet tried Thrive Probiotics, you can get 15% off. Or if you have tried and you want to get more, you can (laughs) use code PaleoView15 at thriveprobiotic.com slash the PaleoView. Both Sarah's family and my family use this probiotic. We only partner with sponsors that we genuinely use and love. And so it was so special for me to see her literally thriving um, and to know that there were recommendations that we had given not just on autoimmune protocol, but different kinds of supplements and different things that she could do. And to see her be a happy, healthy little girl running around um, who, instead of losing hair, was growing hair. And um, like you said, it applies to our entire community um, with this just like ray of hope, you know, it just like Mm -hmm. to see it happen in a little child and to know how difficult it is for a kindergartner to go on AIP, like that's, they don't understand, um, but they do understand 
when they feel better and, you know, when their autoimmune disease is in remission and that kind of stuff. So, um, anyway, just, yes, all to all, all the things and stuff. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm like doing a little happy dance over here, which none of our listeners can see. I just wanted to reiterate that one of the reasons why we've partnered with Just Thrive as a sponsor for this podcast is not only because they make a really high quality product that has, you know, really exciting benefits for the gut microbiome as a whole, but they're also absolutely leading the industry in terms of scientific evidence of clinical trials and of, you know, setting up clinical trials in a way that is like the right way to test something like a supplement. So it's double blind. They're doing some crossover design, right? They're really making sure to get as objective data as they can. And there's been some really, they've, they've started publishing these clinical trials. I think they have something like 15 ongoing um, the one that was published last year that was so exciting was actually showing that the Just Thrive probiotic could reduce intestinal permeability and endotoxemia. And all they had people do, the only thing they changed was taking Just Thrive over 30 days. Like combining that with a protocol that's really amazing for gut health is where like, uh, you know, at least the the science would indicate the magic would happen. Of course, no, no one's actually done that exact, right, AIP plus Just Thrive probiotic type type study yet. But I don't even know if I'm allowed to talk about, I was talking with their uh, chief scientific officer at PaleoFX this year, and he was telling me about some of the results that they're getting from a, their other studies. And I, I'm not going to talk about it because I'm not, I'm not sure if I am allowed to disclose like non-published information yet, because there could be some, them, some things that get them into trouble with, with um, the, the medical journals that they want to publish in. So I won't, all I will say is I'm even more excited about the information that they have um, getting prepared for publication that's coming down the pipeline. Like there's there's some measurements that they've been able to do with their probiotic that could make a phenomenal difference in in people's gut health and gut microbiome health. So I I'm really excited about the quality of their probiotic um, and how it intersects with all of the other things that we do for gut health and immune health and just overall health, but also that they're, they're really going to great lengths to prove it in the scientific literature and, and show some just really exciting data that I can't talk about. So speaking of scientific literature and data, you do want to talk about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I am excited to hear about this week's show, mostly because I hadn't heard of the study that we're going to be referring to. And so uh, I always like just jumping in with the truth of the science on the matter. So are you ready? I'm so ready. I'm assuming there's going to be a soapbox. So I'm, I'm oh, living for several, it. <laughs> several soapboxes. Uh, so the, the day that this um, study came out, uh, this study uh, was called Long-Term Paleolithic Diet is Associated with Lower Resistant Starch Intake, Different Gut Microbiota Composition, and Increased Serum TMAO Concentrations. The day that this study came out, um, it was uh, picked up by the mainstream news, and we started to see headlines like paleo diet study links caveman regime to heart disease biomarker study linking paleo diet to increased heart disease risk strengthens diet industry concerns. Um, there was, uh, there's a, uh, a couple of different websites that cater to physicians, but one in particular that is like a 
the whole point of this website is to keep doctors like up to date on the medical literature. And their headline was paleo diet increases risk for heart disease. And, um, and so naturally my inbox was flooded with questions. Um, the paleo view inbox was flooded with questions. Uh, my social media was inundated with questions of like, wait, is this a real thing? Like, um, the mainstream media, you know, and we know that the mainstream media picks up on any possible anti what they view as a fad diet study and um, often without really communicating the results of the study, we'll hop on it. Um, and then we also know that the standard response from our community is to find some reason why this study is irrelevant. Um, and I was... Um, not surprised to see. Um, so I'll take a step back. TMAO is often linked with red meat consumption. And um, it is thought to be one of the mechanisms behind the link between increased cancer risk and increased cardiovascular disease risk and high red meat consumption. And we'll, we'll get into exactly what the links are in this podcast. But um, I've seen a lot of the quick... Um, oh, well, it doesn't, you know, the, the standard, right? Well, well, it doesn't matter if we're eating red meat um, because we eat grass-fed meat or um, slightly better, it doesn't matter if we're eating red meat because it's, you know, an anti-inflammatory diet as a whole. Um, and so I've seen these types of dismissals um, sort of percolating out there. But actually, um, I, the reason why I want to dedicate an entire episode of, of this podcast to this really digging into this one study is it's a very well done study. It has some results that we really need to pay attention to. Um, my, you know, top line is different than what the headlines are. So I don't see this study as a, you know, nail in the coffin of the paleo diet and let's all go move on to pegan or whatever, you know, whatever the new fad diet is. We talked about that um, a couple episodes ago. But um Instead, I, I see this as a uh, actually like very serious warning about a particular type of impl implementation of paleo and making sure that we, um, we really integrate all of the principles of paleo rather than um, this very common way of uh, combining paleo with other dietary approaches, specifically low carb. So this study, the the you know if if you only have you know a few minutes to listen to this podcast, here's your main takeaway: is this study shows us that there are problems with long term implementation of a low carb paleo diet, and really what it's telling us is that root vegetables are awesome, and fruit, and that's I mean that's that's the main takeaway. So I mentioned that the study was really well designed. Um, what they did was it was um, performed in Australia and they took uh, people who self-reported following the paleo diet for over a year and controls who are following the um, national dietary recommendations of Australia. So that would be similar to the USDA dietary guidelines, right? Whole grains, vegetables, right? My plate. So um, they compared it to people who were following what would be considered a standard healthy diet. I'm using air quotes here, uh, a whole foods-based diet. So the, the nice thing about the study is that their control group was not, you know, fast food and junk food and high sugar intake. It was um, what, 
your doctor might recommend, right? So a fairly low fat, right? Whole food, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll call it, I don't want to call it a balanced diet because it's not really, it's a diet that covers all of the traditional food groups. And then what they did was within the paleo group, they further divided them into two sort of subgroups. So the people who followed paleo very strictly were called strict paleo. And then there was a group that they called pseudo paleo. So this is the like almost paleo people. And why I find this really, like really fascinating that they did this is that that pseudo paleo group, um, they were consuming about one servings of grains and or dairy per day, like 1.2 servings. So these were people who were most of the way paleo, but maybe eating a little bit of rice or maybe, right, eating a little bit of dairy. And I think in the real world, most of us who have been following paleo for a, for a long time fall closer to that like pseudo paleo group than the strict paleo group. Like strict paleo, I think is is very much right. It's the challenge philosophy paleo, or sometimes right the therapeutic paleo would would fall under that strict paleo um, group. Like when Stacy and I were both strict AIP, we certainly would have fallen under that strict paleo group. But that's one of the things that I find really interesting is comparing paleo and uh, sort of a fuzzy outline of paleo to um, what would typically be considered by the conventional medical system to be an ideal diet. And then what they did was they had these people do a three-day weighed diet record. So um, they had to measure everything they were eating and record everything that they were eating. And then they did urine tests to look at um, nitrogen and something called the Goldberg cut point, which measures energy intake. So the nitrogen measures how much protein they were consuming and the Goldberg cut point measures total energy. And if those urine tests did not match what would be predicted based on their diet records, they were eliminated from the study. So that was also a really um, rigorous way to confirm the diet compared to uh, a lot of other studies that use like dietary recall methods. So that that was also a really cool part of the study. And then they eliminated all the normal things that you would eliminate in a study that was going to look at cardiovascular disease risk or gut microbiome. So those are the, the main measurements that they did. So they eliminated anybody who'd been on antibiotics, anybody who was on uh, cholesterol medication or blood pressure lowering medication, anybody who had been previously diagnosed with cardiovascular disease or any kind of GI disorder um, or who had ever had uh, surgery on their GI tracts. So basically eliminating anybody who it's, you know, would predictably be an outlier. So their uh, inclusion criteria was very, very rigorous. And then they did a series of measurements. So they looked at TMAO, which again, we'll, I'll talk about in more detail. They did a bunch of different blood work. So they looked at you know lipid panels and they did a bunch of stool analysis, um, including microbiome analysis. And the, the, the two sort of measurements that turned out to be different between the paleo and pseudopaleo groups and the control groups was the amount of TMAO in their blood and what was happening in their microbiome. So TMAO is um, potentially, you know, because it's a, you know, trimethylamine N oxide, right? It's this long chemical name. It's it's something that you you may have seen sort of floating through uh, mainstream media articles, um, especially in um, it's it's often used as 
a uh, explanation, as I said, for the link between red meat and cardiovascular disease and some forms of cancer. And there's uh, potentially some links between TMAO and uh, chronic kidney disease as well. It's um, emerged in the last few years as a sort of interesting measurement. So there's been a bunch of studies that have looked at TMAO and, say, um, things like cardiovascular disease risk, um, health markers like all-cause mortality, and even meta-analyses that sort of pool all of those studies together show that if you have higher TMAO in your blood, you have a higher risk of cardiovascular disease, 23% increased risk and 55% increased risk of all-cause mortality, which is a, a general marker of health and longevity. So there seems to be this really strong link between TMAO and uh, the strongest link is with cardiovascular disease, but potentially some other uh, undesirable health outcomes. And there's been some, you know, some mechanistic right? Looking at exactly how high TMAO might be causing these conditions. But what's really interesting is that there's also been a lot of research that sort of fails to show a causal link. So there are some scientists, and, and actually the majority of the science from the last two years is starting to picture, uh, make this picture of TMAO as a indicator or a symptom rather than the direct link between high red meat consumption and and heart disease. So there's something about uh, TMAO that's indicating the disease processes going on. And what that link is, is almost certainly the gut microbiome. So how we get TMAO, there's some TMAO that we absorb directly from food, but most of the TMAO that we have in our system is actually made by our gut bacteria when they metabolize choline, lecithin, and carnitine. Um, And choline and carnitine, of course, are very richly found in red meat. So it's a multi-step process. So our gut bacteria um, metabolize carnitine and choline and lecithin into something called uh, trimethylamine or TMA, which then gets is absorbed into our body, goes into our bloodstream, and then it's oxidized in the liver into TMAO. And then once it's turned into TMA, it's right. It's in the bloodstream. It can then circulate throughout the body. It can potentially accumulate in tissues. And that's what's sort of considered the problem. But what researchers have discovered over the last few years is that how much TMAO is in your bloodstream is far more correlated to your gut microbiome than to how much carnitine you ingest, for example. So whether or not you make a ton of TMAO after eating red meat is caused by the composition of your gut microbiome, not necessarily how much red meat you're consuming. So there's certain bacteria um, that have been shown to be, uh, but they're basically TMA producers, which like once you assume your liver is involved, they're, they're considered sort of TMAO producing bacteria. And so um, there's now this, this really interesting um, picture being painted with, with all the scientific literature showing that TMAO is potentially, rather than a causal link between red meat consumption and cardiovascular disease and cancer, that it's an indicator of a gut microbiome And we know that the gut microbiome and certain strains are linked with cancer, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, obesity, chronic kidney disease, autoimmune disease, right? We we know that 
because our gut microbiome control our immune systems, our neurotransmitters, many of our hormones, um, even how um, healthy the gut barrier is, right? Our, our, gut, our gut microbiome impacts every single aspect of our health. TMAO um, being high in the blood may be an indicator of a gut microbiome that is conducive to disease development. So as we start to look at TMAO, it's um, probably less related to red meat consumption so much as a sort of dysbiosis in, in the gut. And one of the, the best pieces of evidence for this is that fish is really, really high in TMAO. So people will get like 300 times more TMAO in their blood after eating fish than after eating beef, even if they have a microbiome that produces TMAO. And fish is like uniformly beneficial and reduces risk of, of heart disease. So this this conflict has been sort of the... Um, the the final piece in that puzzle of, you know, how can we say that TMAO causes heart disease when the food that increases TMAO the most is the food that lowers heart disease risk? Let's start looking at TMAO as an indicator of something going wrong with the gut microbiome. Now, what I've seen in relation to this new scientific study is arguments that say, you know, TMAO probably doesn't cause heart disease. Uh, therefore, paleo causing high TMAO is nothing that we need to worry about. And I, I don't agree with that. I think that high TMAO, especially um, when it's not timed with TMAO-rich foods, so when it's sort of like chronic high TMAO, uh, generally is an indicator of something going wrong with our, our gut bacteria that that needs to be paid attention to. And, and that is probably why, you know, it's not A causes B, but rather A is an indicator of B, which causes C is sort of the, the, the general picture with TMAO and heart disease and, and cancer. So high TMAO, especially after eating non-high TMAO foods, is probably still not good. And so the way the study was designed to measure that, and it's it's not measuring it after eating seafood, right? It's measuring this more um, prolonged measurement is definitely worth paying attention to. So I'm fascinated by the idea. It sounds like the study's crux that says, and thus causes heart disease is TMAO. Does it speak to the fish piece, um, because that makes a lot of sense to me, but it sounds like something maybe you looked into or knew of or found in your research, like separate from the study. Like, secondly, um, one of the things that you said about the study and gut health was very low carb. And so when we talk about um, the results in terms of a more fibrous nutrient source of carbohydrate. What does that look like? Is there anything within the study or you're just looking at tangential research in order to like read between the lines? Am I? I, 
I could not have asked you to ask a better segue question. <laughs> that was perfect. Um, yeah, actually. So, so I mean, obviously, this background in TMAO is is drawing from other studies, but um, what is happening in this particular new study looking at strict paleo and pseudo paleo adherence versus uh, Australian dietary guideline controls is not that TMAO is going up because the paleo people are eating more fish, but rather TMAO is going up because of a shift in their gut microbiomes. So that was what was so cool about the study was they also did gut microbiome analysis and found, um, you know, overall sort of, you know, big, you know, like big trends. There weren't very many sort of big differences. So one of the big measurements that um, studies will look at is the Firmicutes to Bacteroides ratio, which can indicate uh, a microbiome that is associated with disease risk if the ratio is off. That wasn't particularly different, but as they got more detailed into the data, they noticed that two particular um, genera of probiotic bacteria were really low in the paleo and pseudopaleo groups. And that was bifidobacterium, which we've talked about a lot on the show. Bifidobacteria are some of the most important probiotic bacteria in our guts. And roseburia. And so um, that's actually something that's, that's really worth paying attention to. Bifidobacteria are some of our main vitamin producers. They are important for inhibiting uh, pathogen colonization in the gut. They um, help to, they're very, very important for modulating our immune responses. They actually are very important for modulating the gut barrier. Um, they can, they do things like reduce inflammation, um, they can improve glucose tolerance. Like low bifidobacterium is associated with an absolute ton of different um, health problems, and it's it's one of the 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 most ubiquitous members of a healthy gut. So like even though the details of what uh, a perfect gut microbiome is probably really individualized, we know that a healthy gut microbiome has to have bifidobacterium. They are phenomenally important. And what bifidobacterium really likes, so our, our normal food exposure would be fermented dairy. So they love the, the types of sugars that are in dairy, but we're also getting them from, for example, sauerkraut, um, so that we're getting them from other fermented foods. And they are starch-loving bacteria, especially resistant starch. So they really love that like high amylose starch. Um, so that that is a dietary factor that we already know has a really strong influence on bifidobacterium. The other probiotic genus that was reduced in the paleo and pseudopaleo groups was called Roseburia, which there's there's fewer, right? There's like 39 different identified species of bifidobacterium. There's only five different identified species of Roseburia. Um, so there's a little bit less known about them, but they uh, we do know that they're very important for maintaining gut barrier health. So uh, if you have low roseburia, you actually have a leakier gut. And they're very, very important uh, immune regulators, especially um, reducing uh, systemic or general inflammation. And roseburia is also associated, or low roseburia is also associated with a, a huge variety of different health conditions, including, right, both of these are associated with cardiovascular disease. So if you don't have enough, your cardiovascular disease risk goes up, as well as they're both associated with autoimmune disease, um, things like irritable bowel syndrome, neurological disease, asthma, allergies, right? Like, they're they're really important members of a healthy 
gut microbiome and their levels were tanked in the people following paleo and pseudopaleo. And another um, genus had kind of taken their place called Hungatella. Now, Hungatella is um, not anywhere near as well studied as Rosbiria bifidobacterium, but Hungatella are TMAO producers. Um, so they are absolutely associated with TMAO. And that is probably why, um, you know, given that these people following paleo were also consuming more red meat than the um, controls. So they were consuming the precursors at the same time as they were shifting their gut bacteria towards a TMAO producing phenotype. So their gut bacteria were making more TMAO. And, you know, we don't super understand whether or not um, high hungatella might be linked with disease, but we do know that the low rosemary and the low bifidobacterium is potentially a problem. So, as the study, you know, it looks at, okay, well, so we've got high TMAO and we've got all of these different measurements of what these people are eating and we've got these shift in the gut bacteria. So they did all of this really fascinating correlation analysis to try to understand what aspect it was of the study diet that was actually causing these shifts. And so there's all kinds of different um, statistical analysis that they can get at to, to really identify like what what is the thing that is making this difference? And you, you do that by looking at the variation between people within a group and then trying to see if you can make any straight lines, right? And so when you, when you do that, what you find is that um, while TMAO itself was um, mostly aligned with red meat consumption, the shift in gut microbiome that was really driving the TMAO production, that shift was actually... Um, most closely related to total carbohydrate consumption as well as resistant starch consumption. Now, in their control group, those people were eating grains and that was their main source of resistant starch. In the paleo and pseudopaleo group, really interestingly, when you dig into what those people were actually eating, they were mostly eating non-starchy vegetables, hardly any roots and tubers, hardly any fruit. So the um, strict paleo uh, group was only consuming, um, they were both consuming about 90-ish, uh, you know, give or take 10 uh, grams of carbohydrate a day for both paleo and strict paleo and getting quite a lot of fiber. So uh, 27 to 30 grams of fiber per day, which is a, a really good measurement of um, whole food sources of, and non-starchy vegetable sources for those carbohydrates, if those people were eating root vegetables or fruit, their carbohydrate consumption would have gone up substantially um, in, with that same fiber content. So this implies they were consuming, you know, uh, five, six, seven um, servings of, of vegetables a day. So they're, as you sort of dig into the details of what they were eating, um, they were not eating as much resistant starch, um, less than half the amount of total carbohydrates as the control group, about the same amount of fiber. And so it really indicates that this particular implementation of paleo in this um, particular study is a low-carb paleo. They're eating less than 100 grams of, of fiber a day, or sorry, less than 100 grams of carbohydrates a day, and close to 30 grams of, of fiber, which means they're mostly eating broccoli, salads, right, carrots, celery, um, really eating those like low, low carbohydrate, low starch vegetables. And that's where 
the change in the gut microbiome are actually really predictable because both bifidobacterium and rosburia are um, genera of gut bacteria that thrive in starchy conditions. They're both um, bacteria that are very sensitive to the types of carbohydrates we consume. So to take a step even farther backwards, um, our gut bacteria have a, a really amazing ability to digest carbohydrates. So they produce uh, these types of enzymes. We do too, right? So we, we digest uh, carbohydrates with these enzyme co enzymes called casimes. It stands for carbohydrate active enzyme. And uh, our gut bacteria uh, collectively are capable of producing over 10,000 different casimes. We, on the other hand, produce 17 different casimes. So we have 17 different molecular bonds and carbohydrates that we can break apart. And our gut bacteria collectively have about 10,000. But different species of bacteria can be like multitaskers when it comes to um, digesting carbohydrates, or they can be really um, specific. So there's like these multitasking species that make just that one species of bacteria makes 400 or 500 different casimes. So it can thrive with just about any substrate, right? Any food, you eat anything, and that, that bacteria is going to figure out how to derive energy from it. Bifidobacterium is one of the ones that's known to be a specialist. It only makes 45 different casimes, which means its ability to digest carbohydrates is like only a little bit more than double our ability. And so if we don't feed our bifidobacterium the right type of food, um, it it can't survive. It's one of the reasons why bifidobacterium is such a sensitive species to our diet because they really need those like high amylose starches, right? Resistant starches. And they, that's what they really thrive on. In addition to, uh, they do well with fructose based, um, uh, carbohydrates. So what the study participants would have consumed if they'd consumed more fruit as well as, um, galactose based, um, so the, what they would have gotten if they'd been consuming more dairy. And so that's, that's one of the reasons why um, the tank in bifidobacterium, if you just looked at the diet and said, guess what happens to the gut bacteria? Um, anybody who, who uh, studies this would have been able to predict this, this reduction in bifidobacterium. But there's this whole other, like super fascinating to me link um, with TMAO and what's happening in a, in a low-carb diet and the gut bacteria. And it's, it's actually not even bacteria. It's a whole other different type of life form called archaea, which um, used to be thought to like only exist in these like super extreme environments like near um, – like in these like underground salt lakes, right? Like they used to be thought that they were they were these sort of like extremist um, life forms, but we now know that they are normal residents of of the gut, and that archaea are our main um, methane producers. So we have a, a variety of different methane producers. Um, for, of archaea. So Methanobrevibacter smithy is the one that's sort of best understood and um, one that people will see on their microbiome analysis. So if you've ever done a gut microbiome analysis, um, Methanobrevibacter smithy is not actually bacteria, but it's often included in that analysis. And what they're making methane from is a lot of the products of uh, carbohydrate digestion from 
uh, other species like bifidobacterium. So archaea are a real community species, um, well, several species. Um, they uh, actually cooperate with bifidobacterium to break down um, certain substrates, which means they they actually work with bifidobacterium, for example, to to break down glucose in a way that neither one of them could do by themselves and produce methane as opposed to other gases. And these particular methane-producing archaea actually use the the methyl compounds like TMA and TMAO to generate methane. So they're actually degrading the TMA in our in our guts that is produced by the TMA-producing bacteria that um, means that the TMA can't get into our bloodstream for our livers to oxidize into TMAO. And the diet factor that most strongly... Um, correlates with our archaea in the gut is carbohydrate consumption. Um, and that's that's because archaea's favorite food is basically the products of carbohydrate degradation from other bacteria. So we know that archaea um, are they're fruit lovers, um, they are and they're starch lovers. So basically um, high high fruit and starch diets, um, or it's like start roots and tubers diets support Archaea. There's some, not yet human evidence, but there's some animal evidence that archaea don't really love high grain diets. So whether or not that actually applies to human archaea, we still don't know. Um, and they do. They're they're another um, species that um, we actually colonize our gut through uh, dairy. So they actually come from um, different dairy sources. Um, although it looks as though, and we get environmental exposure. So um, archaea is something that we just kind of acquire throughout our life. But that whole piece of archaea working together with bifidobacterium, degrading TMAO, um, thriving with higher carbohydrate consumption, especially starchy vegetables and fruit, starts to make this whole picture when you look, start, you know, really digging into the study, you know, the, the authors of the study make a case for low grain diets as being the problem. But Really, all of the things that would fix this gut microbiome, uh, that would support Roseburia, that would support Bifidobacterium, that would support Archaea, which they didn't they didn't measure. They really only focused on on gut bacteria, um, but would reduce uh, TMAO production through supporting that Archaea colony in the guts. Um, the other food that we could be eating <laughs> would be like starchy roots and tubers and fruit. It, it, this. This study, when you dig into these details, makes a very strong case for um, for high starchy vegetable consumption not being sufficient to support the gut microbiome. And this actually, in the context of the couple of studies that were published uh, earlier this year that looked at ketogenic diets in the gut bacteria, um, where almost all of those carbohydrates are coming from leafy greens, we're, we're starting to be able to show that um, it's it's not enough to just get fiber from non-starchy vegetables. We need the type of fiber that's in fruit and we need the resistant starch that's in root vegetables in order to really support a healthy gut microbiome that is going to reduce the risk of disease. 
And this study very cleverly uses TMAO as a marker of those microbiome changes. It is the mainstream media that is then making the leap to it actually impacting cardiovascular disease risk. It is uh, shocking to me that there is yet another source uh, emphasizing that vegetables are good for you. I'm just <laughs> shocked. I, I think it's... Um, to, to me, what's really interesting, and I, you know, our listeners know that I've been on a uh, kind of like pro-carb bandwagon here for a while. Not that I think we should be eating all the carbs and not um, refined carbs. Like I, I definitely am pro whole food sources of carbohydrates, but I'm, I'm really um, starting to see the evidence accumulate for problems associated with especially long-term low-carb approaches, which for me, actually, you know, I have I have a history uh, that is very relevant because the first time I lost 100 pounds was with a low-carb diet. Um, what brought me to paleo was losing 100 pounds a second time with a low-carb diet and having all of my autoimmune issues, uh, irritable bowel syndrome, asthma, all of these different problems flare. Uh, despite the fact that I had lost weight and and needing a more detailed solution. And as I look back at my own health history, in the context of all of the things that I understand now, I mean, I, I, I didn't have this information back then, is I can really see that those health problems were um, in in some ways driven by the impact to my hormones, right? The impact to my metabolism, the impact, right, to things like my thyroid health, um, my uh, ability to form muscle, you know, all of the things that we talked about in our insulin show. And now understanding that I was probably creating a gut microbiome that was helping to drive all of those disease processes as well by not feeding it enough of the, of, varied carbohydrate sources. So I don't want to say like that broccoli and leafy greens are bad. We know from a whole other variety of studies that they're really, really important for the gut bacteria as well. It's more the necessity for a diversity of fruits and vegetables and not being scared of the carbohydrates in, you know, sweet potatoes and cassava and green plantain and winter squash and, you know, all of those really wonderful boniato. Like there's just wonderful... Um, root vegetables, even if you can't do nightshades, there's a huge collection of wonderful root vegetables, um, tubers and and starchy starchy fruit, actually, like winter squash that we can be consuming and not being phobic of fruit either. Um, you know, the, the, the science is really mounting up that we we actually do best with moderate carbohydrate, moderate fat and moderate protein. Shocking, I know. But these approaches that are... are um, are driving macronutrient extremes or even just macronutrient imbalance have problems associated with them. And, um, this, the, you know, as somebody who lost uh, a metric ton, not uh, that, what that's actually an exaggeration because it was only, you know, a 20th of a metric ton of weight. Um, by following these approaches, like I understand the allure but if we want to take this sort of like tangent down the like, you know, why have, why have these diets um, lasted so long as, as weight loss approaches? It's because it's a set of rules that 
result in ditching hyperpalatable foods, right? So you're not eating all of those foods that um, wreck your body's ability to understand its own hunger signals and um, that actually kind of trick you into reducing your uh, caloric intake. And there's plenty of studies showing that the way low-carb and keto diets work is simply through an energy deficit. And that actually the lower your carbohydrate intake, the more lean muscle mass you're going to lose as you're losing weight, which means that weight loss maintenance is going to be really challenging. So it's amazing to me that these these diets um, persist now with what we know um, when we can very easily formulate a much healthier option that embraces whole food, right? Vegetable and fruit sources of carbohydrates without demonizing them. I just, I guess it's, um, this uphill battle against the amount of misinformation out there on the internet that needs to be fixed. Um, so my, my call to action, uh, besides everyone going home and eating a sweet potato is that, um, is to contribute to this conversation of sort of avoiding carb phobia, like the, the refined carbohydrates, right? The manufactured food carbohydrates, those are clearly bad, but we don't need to lump these super nutrient dense um, roots, tubers, starchy vegetables and fruit and, and demonize them along with cupcakes. No, I'm glad you brought up the piece about distinguishing carbohydrate because that was going to be my real comment before my vegetable comment took over. But (laughs) I think that we seem to, as humans, be drawn to very like dogmatic ideals, you know, give me Mm -hmm. a set of very strict parameters. It's why those bubble Venn diagrams work so well, right? Like you can, (laughs) you can show these are my rules or these are my rules or I can play in this gray area in between and be both. Um, but the truth of the matter is, is not all carbs are the same, just like, you know, not all grains or pseudo grains are the same. And you as an individual might process one completely differently than your Mm -hmm. neighbor. Right. And so, um, no matter what it is, there is no study that finds sugar to be great. <laughs> there's just, no. there's no, there's, there's nothing about that. And or, or a sugar substitute. Let's, right. let's, let's be clear. There's so, no great sugar substitute either. You know, you, I highly recommend if you found this show fascinating and you're listening to us for the first time, or you didn't hear our insulin show, I think that's an important one as it relates to you know, gut health and carbohydrate and overall human health. And I think will help make a lot of sense of the study. I think for me, hearing you break it down, I'm like, well, that's pretty obvious to me because we've talked about needing fiber and needing the antioxidants of vegetables to counteract the carcinogenic known effects of meat on this show a bazillion times. And we've talked about Mm -hmm. how disregarding those two factors as being necessary for health um, as reckless, essentially. And so I think that we as humans, especially, you know, I think about kids and how active they are and um, how their bodies are developing and what their bodies nutrition needs are. And I think to children who are part of 
an extreme diet. And I'm, I'm not going to say like one or the other, because there's, there are so many, <laughs> like there's, you know, yeah. like there's just, I could name a bunch of different things and, and tell you the reasons that it concerns me. But I think if you were to imagine your child in that dogmatic bubble, does it make sense? Does it make you, does it make you comfortable? And if the answer is no, then why would you want it for yourself? You know, like, is it just purely weight loss or are you really thinking about health? Because if you were really thinking about health, you would be okay with your child doing that thing. And, um, you know, there are some parents that feel strongly that they do think it's great and they, they put their kids on one of those um, extreme approaches. But I think for me, even at the very early days of paleo. And I think now I'm much more comfortable calling it the anti-inflammatory nutrient dense diet (laughs) simply for stigmas like this. But, you know, we wrote our first cookbook for kids and the word paleo is not on it. It's called Mm -hmm. Eat Like a Dinosaur and it's a grain-free, dairy-free, allergen-friendly cookbook. And we were specific about that because I didn't want to create this dogmatic approach where children lived in a small bubble. I did it because there are so many health advantages to removing the modern day foods that can cause gut dysbiosis and health ailments. And I wanted to focus on nutrient density and healing and health. And I think studies like this that we cover each time, I just keep going back to the mentality of just focus on health, like colorful, rainbow foods exist for a reason. And there's so much science to support why it is healthy for you. And I think, you know, sometimes we as parents get in ruts and Matt and I just were talking about this yesterday morning. He was tired. We're like back from, um, you know, being on the road for so long and our fridge is not yet like flourishing with all the foods that we would normally Mm -hmm. have in it. And so he just made the kids eggs for breakfast and nothing else. And I was like, come on, you know that you need to like throw some spinach in there, (laughs) you know, like you need to do something, give them some fruit, like they can't just only have eggs. And so it's not that I'm perfect. I mean, Sarah's pretty close to it. She eats lettuce without (laughs) dressing. But, you know, none of us are perfect, but it is something we need to be mindful of each and every day. And I think that's hard. Like it's hard to be mindful and not just to say, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to have bacon and eggs for breakfast because that fits within my parameters and it's quick and easy and I can like microwave it or prepare it a week in advance. Like it's, it's so much harder to think through, okay, how am I going to get all my micronutrients? How am I going to get all my fiber and my colors and my this and my that? Um, so first of all, listeners, I feel you. It's overwhelming. It's a lot, but there are things that you can do to make it easier on yourself to, you know, be excited to like take your kids with you to the grocery store and ask them to pick out two vegetables and two fruits that they love. And when you get home from the store, just cut them up and have them in the fridge or, you know, whatever it is so that when they're hungry and when they want a snack, they can go to those things. And I think that's, you know, there are different things and and we as adults can do that too. It's not just for kids, right? Like when we're drawn to something, it's, easier. We go to the thing that's easier, not like, Oh, I'm going to prepare a tray of roasted okra and snack on that during Netflix. Like I don't do that. But when I do it, 
I love it. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, oh, I'm so I glad I did this. for dinner last night. The, yeah. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Oh, it's okra season. It can is okra t- season. Can you t- I, like, have hearts in my eyes right now. I'm like, oh. Yeah. Okay. I think my tangent's over. I just, I feel like this is the kind of thing where it's so easy to get frustrated and overwhelmed with mixed messages and not sure what, not sure what to do and to feel like you just can't win. And I don't think that's the case. Like what I heard you say is, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Sarah, but if, you know, good quality gluten-free oats agrees with you and your family, like enjoy it. Add some, add some antioxidant rich fruits and maybe mix in some yogurt if that agrees with you, because those things are feeding your gut in a good way. But do we go hog wild on the refined carbohydrates? That's going to not help your gut in a different way. <laughs> you know, so right. it is, it is about balance. And I feel like if we just kind of relaxed into real food a little bit, it would actually come easier and more natural to us versus like trying to stuff it all into like this small round hole when really it's a, you know, like puzzle shaped configuration, (laughs) you know? I think it's also, and I do, I do agree with you. I'm going, I'm going to say something completely shocking that uh, is probably going to get me like seven new internet trolls, but um, oats are actually a gut microbiome superfood. Um, gluten's not great. So I, uh, definitely recommend the gluten-free oats and it's not going to agree with everybody because it is a potential gluten cross reactor for some people. But, um, there are some foods that we, not just a fairly short list, but it's a fairly short, there is a list of foods that we consider traditionally not paleo, um, oats being one of them, lentils being another one and chickpeas, um, being another one and a two dairy, right? So dairy from goats or sheep or camels, that are really, really great for the gut microbiome and when prepared properly are, you know, nutrient-dense whole foods. And so I think that, um, you know, I I, uh, I still really identify with the label paleo, but what I think of as paleo, I think of it as a diet that looks to, uh, you know, paleoanthropology in terms of understanding human biology and then confirms with contemporary studies with a uh, biological systems approach. So understanding every biological system and how our body uses nutrients and um, and has this, you know, this rooted in science approach. Like to me, that's what paleo is. And I, and I realized that there's a, a part of this community that is very dogmatic and has a, a list of yes foods and a list of no foods and incorporates other philosophies into paleo, such as low carb and keto and carnivore. And I, I don't identify with either the dogmatic set of rules or the sort of um, uh, overly simplistic evaluation of the merits of a food. I think that um, I think that this study is a really good illustration of the importance of taking this this really um, thorough, broad look at what foods uh, do for us and don't do for us, and then also um, 
understanding that the one of the biggest problems that we've run into the last, let's say since the 70s, right? So like the last coming up on 50 years with uh, dietary frameworks is this idea that we have to uh, just make an infographic or a list of yes foods and a list of no foods. We just cut, we define all of these diets based on what you cut out, not based on what you eat. And what that has meant is that when people are troubleshooting, the first thing they do is cut out more. And meanwhile, it's not what you don't eat that makes a diet healthy. It's what you actually put in your face that is what makes your, your diet something that supports your body or not. And so, you know, I really see here, well, boy, I'm up on the soapbox. It's like three soapboxes stacked together. What I really see as being necessary for our community is to stop with the memes and the sound bites and the lists and the rules and start embracing a broader education around health topics that helps us really understand what is in foods that helps our, our bodies and what is in foods that may potentially undermine our health and start looking at the gray and not just the black or white so that we can make informed choices and um, and look at these universal truths as opposed to um, these sort of uh, um, arbitrary rules. I think that understanding that we all need nutrient density, that we all need to, to feed our, our gut bacteria, that we all need to regulate our hormones, that that's not just about food, that's a large part about where lifestyle intersects with what we're doing. I think that um, really digging in and understanding, which I, I know our podcast audience has already bought into that because they listen to us every week, but I think that is the key to being able to move beyond the negative impact that some of these fad diets are having on people and beyond the standard American diet, which is obviously eroding people's health as well. My favorite part of the show is when you said it matters what you put in your mouth. (laughs) (laughs) I think I I said it matters what you stuff in your face. There you go. I really hope that that's the quote that they choose for this show. Um, (laughs) And then you were like, and I'm stacked up on three soapboxes. And I was like, and I'm living for it. (laughs) Awesome. So I just want to remind our listeners that if you want to help your gut health, uh, we highly recommend our favorite probiotic, Just Thrive. You can go to thriveprobiotic.com slash the paleo view. And use code PALEOVIEW15 for 15% off. As we've said, Just Thrive has been clinically studied to help leaky gut and uh, proven to survive up to a thousand times better than other probiotics. My favorite thing is that it sits in your cabinet. It does not need to be refrigerated. Um, and it is you, a... You can even bake with it. What? The, the, yeah. No, I mean, the so it's actually soil-based um, probiotics is, is all, all of the strains and just thrive. And they are so resilient that you can actually like open up some capsules and throw it into your muffin mix. I did not know that. Uh-huh. I will say, and I've said before in the show, I can tell a difference when I remember to take it every single day. I have less sugar cravings, um, which is an indication to me that it is helping my gut thrive. So again, thriveprobiotic.com slash the paleo view, 15% off with code paleo view 15. Thank you, Sarah, for taking the time to do all of this research only to shockingly come to the conclusion um, that 
healthy sources of carbohydrate, rich in fiber and antioxidants are good for you. I guess we could have just done the show. Could have just been that line. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, it's good. We lead up to it a little bit. (laughs) Thanks for listening, everyone. I'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to the Paleo View. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping for our favorite paleo products on the sidebars of our individual websites or by donating through PayPal. When people are troubleshooting, the first thing they do is cut out more. And meanwhile, it's not what you don't eat that makes a diet healthy. It's what you actually put in your face that is what makes your your diet something that supports your body or not. And so... Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.